This episode is brought to you through the generous donations of listeners Shelley and Ryan. And I want to welcome our newest members, Tim, Karen, Ruth, and Matthew. Members help keep this podcast going, help defray the cost of hosting, and also help defray the cost of picking up research materials. I'm all too aware of the responsibility that I have to be accurate and up-to-date. And so prior to recording, I try and get my hands on as many up-to-date sources as I can. And while many of those are available at local university libraries, sometimes what I most need isn't available and I need to go and buy it. And that can get a little spendy at times. So thank you very much for helping with that cost. And now, welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. When we left off, Agricola was triumphant and Britannia was rapidly becoming Romanized. There were parts of northwestern Britannia that were not yet conquered, but by and large, the entire island was in Roman hands. And the Flavian period, the era when Rome was ruled by Vespasian and his descendants, would actually be the apex of Roman occupation in Britannia. In 84 AD, Agricola was recalled to Rome. That means that he was governor of Britannia for six years, which is actually pretty long. He had nearly doubled the territory in that time, and he'd survived. All in all, this was an exceptionally good term. So why would he get recalled if he was so good at his job? I mean, even the Britons seemed to be warming up to him. Maybe it was just their feet warming up to the Hippocosts, but it did seem like they actually started to like Agricola. They were wearing togas, and some were speaking Latin. So he was very good at his job. Why recall him? Well, for one... Domitian was, well, Domitian. And he wasn't a big fan of living in the shadow of a governor. After all, Agricola's accomplishments were arguably more impressive than what Domitian did in Germania. And considering the fact that Agricola never held another position despite his military and civic prowess, it is possible that the emperor was threatened by Agricola's, for lack of a better term, cojones. This theory is slightly undercut by the fact that Agricola was offered the governorship of Africa, and he declined it. But it's not outside the realm of possibility that he turned it down for fear of further angering his emperor, which could have put him and his family in danger. So Agricola was retired, either on his own or at the urging of Domitian. But he was loved by the people, so Domitian couldn't exactly expect him to just fade into obscurity. The people wouldn't have liked that one bit. In fact, even recalling him was a bit dodgy. So Domitian did something pretty smart. He gave Agricola triumph decorations and his own statue. This was less than a triumph, thus it still protected Domitian's status, but it was enough of an honor that he avoided bruising egos. And if you're a smart emperor, you would want to eliminate potential rivals while also avoiding creating a standard bearer which others could rally around. After all, it wasn't out of the realm of possibility that a governor with military fame could rally legions to his cause and try and take Rome by force. But as usual, we need to keep in mind who our source is. Tacitus did very little to hide his dislike of Domitian, and did a lot to imply Domitian lost Britannia through mismanagement as fast as Agricola had conquered it. So it's possible that some events were seen through a colored lens. Anyway, long story short... Agricola retired to spend more time with his family and faded from history, leaving Britannia in the hands of a succession of governors. 
Agricola's first successor was put to death by Domitian, actually, and relatively little is known about the governors, or even Britannia, from about 85 AD to about 118 AD. But there did seem to be a gradual demilitarization of the island during that period. So here's what we do know about Britannia. By 92 AD, the second legion was pulled out of Britannia, though they might have actually left as early as 85. After all, there were issues in Dacia at the time, but regardless, by 92, they were definitely gone, leaving only three legions in Britannia. Also, major forts in the north were quickly dismantled and abandoned, and around the same time, the 20th legion was probably pulled back down south to Deva, modern-day Chester. Rome was in retreat in Britannia. So why did this happen? Did Domitian want to undermine Agricola's achievements? Maybe, but that seems a little bit extreme. Did he feel the north wasn't worth the effort? That seems more probable. The lands are harsh, the natives are nutty, and there were more fertile lands elsewhere. Did he think that the north was so cowed that they didn't need so many military units? Well, this might actually be the real reason. After all, there wasn't an immediate recall, but rather a gradual move back south. This suggests that Domitian and his governors thought they could control the north from their territories in the south. Support for the theory that Domitian wanted to concentrate power in the south is also found in the establishment of Lincoln and Gloucester towards the end of Domitian's reign, or shortly after his death. You'll note that there's a little ambiguity regarding when these towns were established. The reason we can't be sure if these towns were founded under Domitian or after him is that he was such a hated emperor that his name was deliberately expunged from the record after he was assassinated in 96 AD. So for example, even though Gloucester was given the honorific title Nerviana, it doesn't necessarily mean that Gloucester was established by Domitian's successor, Nerva. It might have just been renamed. But regardless, what we're seeing is a steady move of power towards the south. And also, Domitian has a successor. So what happened there? Well, nearly everyone hated Domitian. And in the end, he was assassinated by a conspiracy that included even his wife. Fun! I told you just about everybody hated him. And into this power vacuum was pushed an old Roman lawyer, Nerva, who was selected to become the new emperor. Now, why the Romans opted to have an old man as an emperor rather than reverting back to the Republic, is an interesting subject. But it's actually a pretty big tangent, so we're just going to say that this was the beginning of the period known as the Five Good Emperors. And in many ways, it was the Golden Age of the Empire. But not exactly the Golden Age of Britannia. So, Nerva was old, though he was also reportedly a moderate emperor. But because of his age, he didn't last very long, which leads us to Trajan. Now, during the Flavian period, the area we just discussed with Vespasian and his descendants, and the early Trajanic period, where we are now, we see a lot of growth in the south of Britannia. Temples, baths, forums, a governor's palace, and other stereotypically Roman conveniences start to crop up. And London actually really started to take off during this period, and it, it become a municipium. During this period, the governors and emperors used construction as propaganda. Essentially, it worked like this. They would say, look, Britons, look at what we built for you. We clearly care about you and want you to be good and loyal subjects. And when you look around these beautiful towns, doesn't it just pay to behave? 
You saw what happened to the rebels. It's pretty grim stuff. But you're being so good you get baths. Now about those taxes. And of course, those taxes help fund Trajan's project of replacing wood fortresses with stone fortresses. You didn't think that the Romans were suddenly going all cuddly and were going to use the taxes for philanthropic golds, did you? I mean, come on. However, just because forts were being upgraded doesn't mean that Rome was expanding in Britannia during Trajan's rule. In fact, throughout this period, we see a number of forts that were being burned down. Initially, it was thought that this was due to military disaster, but now it's thought that this was an organized withdrawal. So, Domitian, Nerva, Trajan, they were all steadily moving south. And within the first several years of the second century, Rome had entirely pulled out of Scotland. Did I lose you on that? This period can be confusing as hell, especially since there's an enormous blank spot in history around here. The takeaway from all this is that Agricola's advance was gradually lost over the next 30 years. Oh, and there are a number of governors that we know very little about, although several of them were senators, so that tells us that the post of governor of Britannia was actually becoming less of a burden and more of an honor. But basically, the blank spot in history makes telling stories about these individuals pretty tough. Archaeology does its best to fill in the gap, but it's not exactly a science and doesn't create history. So we're left in a tough spot for the story. But I have a solution for that. A mystery of this era that has been popularized in film and books, even though we have very little evidence to go on. And to segue into this topic, I'll talk about a personal tragedy that is directly related to it. Several weeks ago, I saw The Eagle. The Eagle is a film, and to be honest, I think calling it a film is rather generous, that was purported to be about the Ninth Legion. It was quite an experience. And a little while before that, I saw Centurion, which was better, however most anything would be, and it was also allegedly about the Ninth. So while I was cringing my way through the Eagle, I realized that we're just getting to the point in our story where the Ninth disappears from history. So I thought we should probably talk a little bit about it. The history, not the films. Though I am rather tempted to do a separate short podcast on how the eagle failed both on a historic level and a film level. It's just awful. But first, let's talk about the ninth. So let's fix some pop culture stuff that you might have picked up over the years. First, if you've seen the eagle, understand that it's based on a children's novel that was written in 1954. Mrs. Sutcliffe wrote a story called The Eagle and the Ninth. And pretty soon, the concept of the Ninth getting wiped out by tribes in Scotland became common knowledge. But the problem there is that there really isn't a lot of evidence to support it. In fact, there isn't much evidence at all. But on first glance, it does seem a little far-fetched. The theory is the Ninth marched into Caledonia and were never heard of again. As many as 10,000 men just up and disappeared in the North. Not a single survivor escaped to tell the tale. Wait, really? 10,000 men killed and no one escaped? 10,000 men and we don't even have a record of it? That's a pretty enormous military disaster to simply ignore in the record as if it were, you know, an unimportant event. And 10,000 men without a single survivor? This is the same territory where Agricola took on 30,000 Caledonians and didn't even bother to field his legions. He just used 11,000 auxiliaries and cavalry. 
And why wasn't it written down anywhere? Some theorists say that the Romans were so ashamed that they whitewashed the event for fear of a public outcry. I don't know. I'm sure the Romans weren't shouting it from the rooftops, but there were other military disasters that occurred in Rome's history, and those events were still recorded in their historical accounts. So it seems a little strange to me. And I think we should look into it a little bit more because of that. So who were the Ninth Legion? Well, it really depends. The thing is that the first Ninth Legion, which served Caesar, was disbanded and later reformed by Augustus. So can you really consider it all the same Ninth Legion? I don't know. Probably not. But for our purposes, we're going to anyways. So the Ninth Legion was founded in the first century BC by Pompey. The title Hispania, which was an honorific from the earlier campaigns in Spain, wasn't bestowed upon them until the reign of Augustus. And while it was smaller when it was founded, by the time of its disappearance, the legion had expanded to about 6,000 men, not including the auxiliaries. This was a very large operation, and they were also very well armed. When they first invaded Britannia, they were decked out in chainmail, but by the time of the disappearance, the legionaries probably had plate armor, helmets with an extended part at the back of the head to protect the neck, a curved rectangular shield. Basically, at this period in time, they had the equipment that Hollywood is fond of attributing to Roman soldiers, regardless of which era they're supposedly filming. <laughs> oh, Hollywood. Anyway, for once, Hollywood is pretty useful. So imagine a Hollywood Roman soldier. That's largely what we're talking about during Hadrian's reign, which was around the time that many theorists believe they disappeared. But it wasn't just Romans who served the Ninth. There were also auxiliaries, who were soldiers from allied tribes. Now these warriors would generally be outfitted with their own gear. Later, their gear would become standardized, but at this point in time, if you're from Germania, you would probably be armed like a soldier from Germania. Now, the legion and its auxiliaries were commanded by a single legate, who usually held the position for about three years. The legate would have six tribunes serving under him, and generally the tribunes were ideal positions for young Roman nobles to serve in to gain military credentials for future political campaigns, or military veterans who wanted to ascend the ranks since they were often given command of detachments or garrison forts when the main legion was out on campaign. And, of course, you'd have the soldiers, who were divided into centuries, and at the end of each would be a centurion. A centurion typically rose from the ranks of ordinary soldiers and had a lot in common with modern-day non-commissioned officers. These really were the backbone of the legion, just like any good non-com is today. You would also have a standard bearer who would carry the eagle, and another would carry the legion's emblem. Maybe it was a boar, like the emblem they gave the town of Iboricum. We don't have any record of what the Ninth Legion's emblem actually was, though, so it's just a guess. Anyway, they'd also have medics, priests, surveyors, architects, and potentially siege equipment, depending on the situation. The point is that when a legion marched, it was a big operation. So now we know more about legions and whatnot, let's talk about what the Ninth Legion did in Britannia. They were, of course, utilized on the continent and had a string of victories over there. But this is the British History Podcast and not the Ninth Legion Podcast, so we're going to skip right over those and get to the good stuff. To begin with, the Ninth were not part of Caesar's invasion. That honor went to the Seventh and the Tenth. But that's okay, because Caesar's invasion wasn't exactly successful, so I doubt there were any hurt feelings over it. They were, however, tapped for Caesar's second invasion, and were one of the five legions that were brought over. 
They were probably involved in the advance on the forces of Bigbury after the British defenses fell, but had to halt the advance due to a naval disaster. Remember that? Anyway, I don't want to retread too much old ground. They were successful in Britannia, sort of, and then they went home. And then they did all the things that soldiers are wont to do for about a hundred years. But they did it on the mainland and in Africa, so who cares? And then they were ordered to invade Britannia by Claudius. And Aulus Plautius gave them the order to cross the channel. And they replied that they would march anywhere in the world, but not out of it. Of course, the Ninth did later change its mind and invaded Britannia after getting chastised by a former slave. So once in Britannia, they campaigned against the Brigantes in 51 and 52 AD. They were involved in the formation of the treaty between Cartamandua and Rome. They were involved in the ending of Venutius's 56 AD civil war. You'll recall that there were several led by Venutius. They were butchered by Boudicca in 60 or 61 AD while under the command of Cerealis. And by 70 AD, they marched north, and in 71, they arrived in Aboracon, modern-day York, and founded it as a Roman city called Iboricum. Now this is an interesting bit of history. So the name Iboricon might have originated from the Irish Gaelic Ibrach, which means muddy place or marshy place. Though there are those who think that Iber is etymologically close enough to the ancient word for you, and that the original name might have meant the place of the ewes. If that's the case, Maybe the original location was a marshy site that held a sacred grove of yew trees. And considering that the Ninth Legion took it over, the more superstitious amongst us might well think that this might account for their bad luck. Regardless, they marched into Aboracon, renamed it Aboracum, and gave it a Celtic badge, a wild boar. And now it was a Roman town. At this period in time, Aboricum contained approximately 50 acres and supported approximately 6,000 heavy infantry. Clearly, Aboricum was an important Roman possession, and it would actually become even more so later on. In fact, emperors would visit it, and not just footnote emperors, but the biggies. For example, Constantine was actually proclaimed emperor in Aboricum. Constantine, the guy who converted Rome to Christianity, yes, that Constantine, so it was a big possession in Britannia, and it would actually end up becoming the capital of Britannia Inferior once the province was split in two. But we're really getting way ahead of ourselves, so let's get back to our time period. And right now, Eboricum is simply one of the better Roman towns in the north, and was one of the starting points of Agricola's advance north. Speaking of that advance, the Ninth Legion was involved in that too. In fact, it was attacked in the dead of night by the Caledonians, nearly wiped out, and had to be rescued by the other Roman forces. Now that's actually pretty important because it provides a counterpoint to the popular argument that the Caledonians simply could not have destroyed a Roman legion, that they just weren't strong enough. And actually, I think this provides a good segue for the next stage of this discussion, which is the evidence for what happened to the Ninth Legion. So let's talk about what happened to the Ninth Legion when they were attacked by the Caledonians. So what happened was, according to Tacitus, the sentries were asleep, or they were panicked and they just froze in place. I find that doubtful, and chances are they are simply taken by surprise and cut down, and Tacitus was looking for any excuse for why the Romans nearly lost to a bunch of naked northerners. So somehow, the sentries were dealt with. And the Caledonians made it over the walls, opened the gates in the dead of night, and allowed the main force to rush in. 
Luckily for the Romans, Agricola's scouts had seen the Britons advance and had informed him. And since Agricola was encamped nearby, he was able to dispatch cavalry and infantry to support the Ninth. Meanwhile, the Ninth was in this desperate fight against the Caledonians. The Caledonians were inside the walls, the Ninth were hemmed in, so instead of being a fortress, it was more like a trap. And this was essentially an ambush, so the Romans probably didn't even have time to put their armor on. And it would have taken quite some time to get them organized into an effective fighting unit. So what this basically means is that for a good portion of the fight, it was likely a chaotic melee. And as we discussed in prior episodes, this is a recipe for British success. So in the dead of night, the ninth are beset on all sides by the enraged natives, and men are dropping like flies all around them. And gradually, they organized and forced the battle into a choking point at the gates. And there they held, despite suffering terrible losses, and placed their hopes on some sort of reprieve before they finally became overwhelmed. And into this mess rushed Agricola's cavalry. And soon thereafter, the Caledonians were routed. Some of you might be noticing a missing fact from this account. Casualty figures. Typically, Tacitus crowed about the massive casualties in this battle or that battle, but he's silent here. And this suggests that the Ninth really took one hell of a beating in that fight. So the Caledonians definitely could have wiped out the Ninth. And actually, the northern tribes would later slaughter a general and his troops in 179 AD. The point is that the Caledonians were certainly capable of offering resistance, regardless of what happened at Mons Graupius, the battle where the Caledonians were crushed by Agricola. Oh, and speaking of Mons Graupius, the Ninth were there as well, but it doesn't look like they're involved that much, if at all. And in fact, that was the last recorded battle that the Ninth were involved in. So early in the 2nd century, the Ninth were back in Aboricum, modern-day York, and were involved in the stone reconstruction of the town. Sometime around 107 or 108 AD, a gate was built in York, and though it's been damaged over time, archaeologists have pieced together its inscription, an inscription that mentions the Ninth Legion for the last time. We've only found two tombstones in Aboricum that belong to the men of the Ninth, a soldier and a standard bearer. And there was also an inscription written by the clerk of the Ninth, a man called Celerianus, who wrote to Silvanus, the god of the woods. And then the Ninth disappeared. So how do we know that the Ninth disappeared? Well, sometime around 162, a pair of columns were erected in Rome during the reign of Marcus Aurelius. For pop culture reference, he was the nice old emperor and gladiator. So these columns are very important to our story because two legions were missing from the inscriptions, the 9th and the 22nd legion. So sometime between 108, when they built that gate, and 162, when Marcus Aurelius failed to mention the, the 9th legion on his columns, the 9th ceased to exist. Incidentally, this period included some massive military construction projects, including Hadrian's Wall and the Antonine Wall. Legions typically made inscriptions on the works they accomplished to indicate what they've done. The ninth is suspiciously absent from everything except for the gate. Of course, that might just be because we have an unearthed inscriptions that are lying in wait for us, or maybe by chance they were destroyed, or maybe the ninth was already wiped out. It's hard to say. So there's another wrinkle for us to look at before we start talking about theories. There were tiles found in Nijmegen, modern-day Holland. 
So we found these tiles, and they appear to have been stamped by the Ninth Legion. One thing that we know is that Domitian called for vexillations of British legions, including the Ninth, to be brought over to help defend the Rhine frontier in the mid-80s. But it's argued that these tiles would not have been linked to that operation. Rather, some believe that the tiles reflect an additional posting of the legion and Nijmegen, potentially following the construction of the 108 Aboricum Gate. So one of the arguments that people make regarding these tiles is they, they use a peculiar numbering format. Instead of using IX to denote the number 9, they use VIIII. Some have suggested that the inscription might have actually referred to the 8th Legion Augusta, VIIIA, and point to the fact that the 8th was actually based on the Rhine frontier. However, it's not unheard of for Romans especially ancient Romans, to write the number 9 as V-I-I-I-I. In fact, there are over a dozen known variations of the Ninth Legion stamp. Additionally, the bolstering evidence that supporters of the tiles theory provide rests upon the tile found in Carlisle. The Carlisle tile was also stamped with V-I-I-I-I. And it looks remarkably like the Nijmegen tile, actually. And that goes a long way to suggest that the Ninth made both. So why are these tiles so important? Well, first of all, the tiles were in Nijmegen, modern-day Holland. And second, some have dated them to 121 AD, and point to this as evidence that the Ninth survived Britannia and found its end somewhere on the continent. Of course, others argue that the tiles actually should be dated to the early 80s AD, and therefore it doesn't prove anything. Archaeology is kind of fun, isn't it? So then there's another argument regarding kilns. Basically, there isn't much evidence that legions built kilns during the construction of forts, and therefore, maybe the tiles were prefabricated in one area and transported to building locations. And we know that there was a major tile manufacturer in Carlisle, and therefore the theory goes that the presence of the tile doesn't actually indicate that the ninth were in Nijmegen. Rather, the tiles might have just been sent there. After all, there's no evidence that the 8th Legion operated in Britannia, and no serious historian suggests that the 8th was garrisoned at Coritanorum, which is modern-day Leicester. Yet, there were 8th Legion tiles found in Leicester. So basically, the tiles aren't the smoking gun that we hoped they would be. And the theory goes that they could have been made in bulk and stockpiled or reused. You know, we just don't know. But we have more evidence to consider than just tiles. We have the 6th Legion. So when Hadrian visited Britannia in 122, because there had been a major rebellion in 119 to 121, he brought with them the 6th Legion, which then took over Aboricum, the 9th Legion's post. Well, where did the 9th go? Good question. So decades later, Frontinus wrote to Marcus Aurelius and, to cheer him up, reminded him that his grandfather, Emperor Hadrian, had lost great numbers of soldiers to the Jews and the Britons. Hadrian became emperor in 117 AD, and we're relatively certain that the great number of soldiers that were lost to the Jews were the 22nd Legion. Remember the 22nd Legion? That was one of the two missing legions on the Aurelian columns, the other one, of course, being the 9th who were stationed in Britannia. So, could it be that the Ninth were lost in battle with the Britons during the reign of Hadrian starting in 117? It certainly could explain why Hadrian's wall was built. And this is in line with a tombstone that we found in Ferentinum, 
that indicates that there was an emergency early in Hadrian's reign that required over 3,000 reinforcements to be sent immediately to Britannia, and that the emperor himself arrived with the 6th legion to correct, quote, many faults on the island. Was one of those many faults the loss of the 9th legion? That's what Hollywood thinks. But we also have officers of the 9th who were known to be active after 117 AD. Take Lucius Aemilius Carus, for example. He was the governor of Arabia in 142 AD. He certainly provides a wrinkle in the theory that they were wiped out to a man. However, it's entirely possible that he was left behind when the legion marched to meet their destiny. Officers were often left behind, as were cohorts, to defend encampments and the like. And that's something to keep in mind. So that's about it for the evidence. So to recap, because I'm pretty sure that your head is spinning right now, we have the near destruction of the Ninth in a Nine Assault by the Caledonians during Agricola's advance, the final battle at Mons Graupius, a gate built by the Ninth in Aboricum in 108 AD, a rebellion in Britannia from 119 to 121 AD, tiles in Nijmegen that could either be dated in the 80s AD or at 121 AD, a tile in Carlisle that looks remarkably like the Nijmegen tile, a couple tombstones, and an inscription to Sylvanus. We also have an anonymous loss of troops to the Britons in 117 or later, Hadrian traveling to Britannia in 122 with the 6th Legion, and the construction of Hadrian's Wall in 122. And finally, there's an, a former officer becoming the governor of Arabia in 142 AD, and in 162 AD, the ninth is missing from the Aurelian columns. It's confusing, isn't it? So let's talk a little bit about the theories that people have on what might have happened. Theory number one. The ninth was removed to Dacia by Emperor Trajan. The idea behind this is that Dacia was in dire need of troops, and Trajan recalled the Ninth to take part in his war. The problem here is that the Dacian Wars predate the Aboricum inscription. So even if the Ninth was sent over in force, rather than simply as a vexillation, as was common, then it still does nothing to explain the disappearance, unless somehow someone else put in the inscription in uh, Aboricum, which is really unlikely. So all this theory does is discuss what the ninth might have been up to prior to the disappearance. So let's move on to the second. Theory number two. The sack of Aboricum. Some theorists suggest that the ninth was lost due to a sacking of Aboricum during the uprising in the Brigantian and Caledonian territories. The theory is in the 1-teens AD, there was a massive uprising where the forts as near as 20 miles from Aboricum were being burned down. Auxiliary forces were being destroyed, and maybe part of the ninth was off in Nijmegen, making tiles, so the legion was only at partial strength. And sometime around then, Aboricum was overrun, and both the legion and the town were destroyed. And what, they just left? There's no evidence of Aboricum having to be retaken, nor is there evidence of Brigantian and Caledonian warriors armed with Roman equipment in large numbers. So did they just melt down the loot out of spite and then leave after taking the town? It just doesn't seem likely. Theory number three. The ninth was disbanded in disgrace. The theory goes like this. The ninth was probably subject to a major military defeat, and then they displayed either cowardice or engaged in outright mutiny. 
And in response, the emperor disbanded the legion. Now, Hadrian was known for being, well, quite a disciplinarian emperor. And so at first glance, this is an attractive theory. After all, a situation like this would be a stain on Rome's honor, and so you'd think they wouldn't want to write too much about it. But the problem is, is that Roman historians did write about stuff like this. After all, we have already discussed numerous mutinies of legions. In fact, you had multiple legions, including the Ninth, mutinying when Claudius ordered them to cross to Britannia. You also had the 20th legion mutinying when they weren't allowed to brutalize the local Britons, and they went and, you know, deposed the governor of Britannia. Commanding legions must have been like herding cats. Moreover, when the emperor was displeased with a legion, there were other punishments available. For example, Emperor Galba decimated a legion. Or if the emperor wasn't totally unreasonable like Galba was, the leader of the legion could just fall on his sword, like what happened to Poenius Postumus. But that isn't to say that disbanding was unheard of. But typically, you would only risk being disbanded if you were raised during a civil war and you were on the losing side. But typically, legions would just keep going. For example, Vespasian didn't disband any British legions, even though they'd all supported a different emperor at one point or another during the Year of the Four Emperors. Now, Hadrian was no pussycat, and I believed he had the stones to disband the Ninth if he wanted to, but the point is that disbanding seems pretty extreme, and if it happened, I find it pretty strange that no one wrote about it. I mean, where was Dio? Surely he'd have some flowery language to describe the depths of disgrace that the Ninth had fallen into, so as to make them an example to other Romans. But that's all missing. Which takes us to our next theory. Theory number four! They were taken to fight the Jewish war. The support for this theory is found in the fact that the governor of Britannia, Sextus Julius Severus, was sent to campaign against the Jewish Bar Kokhba revolt. The theory goes that he took the Ninth with him. That would mean that the Ninth was in the east and fighting between 133 and 135 AD. It would be unusual for a governor to just grab a legion from his territory and take it with him to fight a war on the other side of the world, but not impossible, but still very strange. The main issue that I see with this theory, though, is that we've got nearly 30 years of silence, not a single inscription. I would imagine that if they were in Britannia, they would have at least been partially involved in building Hadrian's Wall. So where are the inscriptions? The lack of any evidence of the Ninth Legion in Britannia following or even during the construction of Hadrian's Wall suggests to me that the Ninth either was lost or left Britannia prior to its construction. Therefore, I think it's kind of unlikely that the Ninth went into Judea as Severus's private fighting force and was lost during that conflict. Additionally, there are much better arguments that the Legion that was lost during that war was the 22nd, not the Ninth. Theory number five. The legion was lost in the Parthian conflict. This one suggests that the Ninth was transferred out of Britannia, probably to Nijmegen, around the time that Hadrian visited Britannia and installed the Sixth Legion at Eboricum. Hadrian was known for going from territory to territory, fixing things that weren't working, so redeploying the legions wasn't out of the question. So eventually, the Ninth found themselves fighting the Parthian War nearly 50 years later, and were stationed at Elegia. Now, it's totally reasonable that soldiers would have been brought from the far corners of the empire to fight the Parthians. That was a major theater of war, 
And the need for men was so great that the emperor had actually offered freedom to slaves if they joined the army. But you have some big issues here. First, 50 years of silence. I can't be ignored. Second, the theory is that the Ninth was lost at a major battle at Elegia, which took place less than a year before the columns were erected. That just seems a little too close in time for something as serious as a column that essentially erases a legion. Finally, the Parthians weren't exactly shy about their victories. If they'd wiped out the Ninth, they would parade the eagle and any prisoners and just anything they got their hands on and shout about their victory to the ends of the earth. But they didn't. Theory number six. The Ninth was redeployed to Carlisle when the Sixth was stationed at Aboricum. Obviously, a big foundation for this theory is the Carlisle Tile, and the fact that there was some work done on Hadrian's Wall by an unidentified group at Carlisle. The first problem that comes to mind with this theory is that the fortress at Carlisle really was just too small for a legion. It would have only housed around a thousand men, so unless the Ninth suffered a massive defeat, then didn't get any reinforcements, it really couldn't have been housed at Carlisle. But if the Ninth did suffer a terrible defeat and lose the confidence of the emperor, either through dishonor or some other failings, such as their demonstrated poor luck, maybe it's possible that they were denied reinforcements and were relegated to Carlisle. They might have even been stripped of their legionary title and therefore didn't put inscriptions on their work. Or perhaps they were putting their inscriptions on the wood that formed the basis of the turf wall on Hadrian's Wall, which could account for the lack of inscriptions. From there, the remnants of the legion could have been dispatched into Nijmegen, or cohorts could have been shuffled into other legions as reinforcements. You know, this one seems more plausible than the others, and it fits with a lot of the evidence available. It explains how you can have tiles in different areas. It explains how you'd have an officer who'd survived and became governor in Arabia. It fits in with the tombstone that talks about the emergency that required 3,000 reinforcements. It fits in with a lot of stuff. This is a pretty good theory. But we've got another one. One that um, is really big in Hollywood. Theory, theory number, number seven. seven. Unlucky seven. This could also be called the Ninth weren't good at their jobs theory. So they were butchered by Boudicca. Then they were again butchered by the Caledonians in a night battle. And this theory is that the Ninth had one less fight in them, and they were going to get butchered again. The Ninth was probably under strength due to the Dacian Wars, and the North, probably encouraged by repeated tributes paid to them to keep them from raiding, decided that it was time to once again attack the Romans sometime around 117 AD. And then the Ninth was sent on a punitive campaign, probably leaving a cohort behind at York, and it's possible that a couple cohorts might have also been on the continent as well. So an understrength legion, maybe with auxiliaries, but maybe not, marched north, probably along Dare Street, into a militarized and rebellious territory an area populated with warlike people who had not forgotten Mons Graupius and were waiting for a chance to get a little payback. The tribal force that faced them probably knew of the success of the night ambush that occurred in decades past and sought to replicate that tactic. And without a relief column or cavalry to save them, the ninth was overwhelmed and all within the camp were killed.
That's the basic theory. But if you're like me, you've got a huge question eating away at you. Where's all the equipment? Where are the accounts of Northern Britons decked out in Roman gear fighting with Roman weapons? And while we're at it, why wasn't this discussed? It's bizarre that there was an entire legion lost and no one would talk about it. Also, if there were still portions of the legion left behind on the continent, it doesn't support the they were entirely wiped out without a trace storyline either. So there you have it. Seven theories. And here's the rub of this episode. It's totally reasonable for scholars to point to various bits of evidence and say the theories of the destruction of the Ninth in Britannia are not credible. However, it's also completely reasonable for scholars to point out that the theories regarding the departure of the Ninth from Britannia are also not credible because of equally conflicting evidence. No one has an airtight case, and consequently, it's still a mystery. But here's something that isn't a mystery. The Eagle is a very bad movie. So that's it. I am not going to do another mystery episode. That took way too much work, and there are far too many opinions out there from less than credible sources. I even went and read a very, very badly written, quote, history, quote, book on the disappearance of the Ninth Legion that argued that among the various theories, they might have gone and set up a town in China that is called Li Jen. Get it? A bunch of legionaries setting up a town called Li Jen. Um, and also was talking about how it's possible that they might have gone and fought in Ireland and got wiped out. And then there was a cleanup of the whole thing. And neither the Irish kings or the Romans wanted anyone to know about it. And it was a big conspiracy to hide it. I am not kidding. And I felt my IQ dropping, which is why I didn't even bother sharing them with you so next week we're going to be talking about hadrian's wall we're going to be talking about things that credible scholars have credible theories on and there's going to be hard facts and none of this legion and you know romano irish conspiracy theory bs to wade through so as always if you want to continue the conversation and talk about various books or movies that you've seen about the ninth legion that you think are subpar you can always head over to the british history or you can go to facebook.com slash british history if you head over there click the like button and you'll get updates on your facebook and if you want to talk to me privately you have any questions comments concerns you want to know what horrible book i'm referencing here uh, you can email me my email address is the british history podcast at gmail.com and as always thanks for listening